Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, your weekly podcast where we take a deep dive examining knowledge, philosophies, wisdom and insights to help you to lead, manage and coach in football, sports and life. Leader Manager Coach is presented by Rob Riles. Rob is a qualified coach with a League Managers Association qualification and a science and medicine background. He has worked in the football industry in Europe, USA and Africa at international, premiership, league, non-league and grassroots levels with World Cup and European Championship experience. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leader Manager Coach podcast. Welcome to the programme. If it's your first time, a real warm welcome to you and um, please have a look at our uh, long list of previous episodes because we have absolute tons of stuff on leadership, on management, on coaching, on uh, philosophy and we share an absolute depth of, of thought from some great leaders who uh, are in the present and some who are now in the past. But that's what we aim to do on the Leader Manager Coach podcast. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And um, I hope today's episode is going to inspire you. Now, today, what I wanted to do and what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some thoughts. And they're personal thoughts, but they're basically inspired by a book as many many things are in my life and this particular book is a book like often happens with me I see a book I think oh wow that's that looks great go and buy it off Amazon normally and uh, it'll sit in my pile of to-do lists because I've got a a list of books to read that um, in this round of life I probably won't get through but we'll that's another story really so this book is called The Captain Class and it's subtitled The Hidden Force Behind the World's Greatest Teams. And it's by Sam Walker. And the, the title and subtitle obviously grabbed me. So it's something that I bought. And it's a recent book, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 2017 published. So it's not that old. And um, you, know, you know that time when you find a book that the best way to describe it is you can't put it down. Well, this was one of those books for me. And so I want to personally thank you, Sam, if you ever listen to this, because you've written a wonderful book, in my opinion, and for a number of reasons, which I'll come to, that you can't wait to get back to your room or to sit down with your cup of tea and read the book. And that's how this book grabbed me. And I'm always inspired when I find a book like that, because, you know, not every book's the same. And just grab you like that. So what's this book all about and why is it so special and why is it worth sharing on a podcast about leadership, management and coaching? Well, let's just tell you the story behind the book as Sam kind of tells it himself. He, he set out to find out what it was that was responsible for or created the world's greatest teams. Because as he says in his book at the beginning of his book there's nothing that sets off a barroom chat and heated debate so much as discussing which team is the greatest in whichever sphere and that is where the, the author set out Sam Walker where he set out and so he went on and uh, he did his initial research and in his initial research he found that he was as a, a man and so eloquently he puts things and 
he what he does is he underlines the absolute importance in this book of having a scientific and a researched based methodology behind methodology behind all your assumptions you know so many of us and I, I've done this myself so many times how many of you can rec- recognize this that you hear something you listen to something you read something and you automatically assume that it's correct and what Sam Walker does in this book is he describes how he went about the expensive task to give the absolute due diligence and put the finest, the best he could research methodology in place and the right criteria to come up with the answer to his question about the world's greatest teams. And that's one of the reasons why this book is worth reading. And it's also a great lesson for all of us that you know we need to, to abs- sit back and analyze how long things take and how long things are likely to take and the relevant amount of energy, effort and time and probably expense that has to go into a project to make it worthwhile. But if anything's worth doing, as your mum probably told you or one of your mentors, it's worth doing well. And Sam Walker, you've done it well, in my humble opinion. So there's this guy setting out. And what he found was, well, actually, the first problem he had is how to define a team because teams are obviously more than one person but does two people define a team and is that different than a team of 11 and what about teams that play together like a rugby team or a football team compared to a rowing team who yes work together but don't interact in the same way or a boxing team who actually act individually but are part of a team so once you get into something how often do we find that things are much more complicated and complex than they first seem? Probably all the time. So what Sam did is he created a criteria and he went through a real a real sieving process and a criteria process to, to whittle it down to the absolute cream of the cream, the 0.1% of teams that have been the greatest in the history of recorded sport. And some of the factors he used were that these teams had to have engaged in a major sport. So it couldn't be some kind of uh, sport that's on the edge, that's not in the Olympics or is only done in one country. It had to be a major sport. The teams had to work together. So it had to be a team where the players or the, the people involved worked together. It couldn't be a boxing team where people acted individually. In order to, to make his research where he wanted it to be, he said there had to be a minimum of five players on a team or five individuals that made up the team. They had to have competed in the world's top competitions. So they couldn't just have competed in a local league and become champions for 36 years running. They had to have competed in the world's top competitions. They had to have had a success period that traversed a number of years. It couldn't have just been a one-off. It had to be 
a number of years that put it in a bracket of a sustained success. The teams had to have had sufficient opportunities to compete because sometimes in the world, due to finances, due to politics, due to nature, things came in the way and have come in the way of people and teams and and countries and and organisations competing. And the record that they had achieved had to stand alone as something that was iconic. So those were the criteria. And as I say, if you, as I often say, if you read the book, you'll be able to de- take a much deeper dive into how he came up with his criteria. So he was really stringent and he came up with the top 16 teams that the world has ever known in recorded sport. And these teams ranged from Australian rules football to baseball to soccer to ice hockey, basketball, um, volleyball, and handball. And uh, so, so, they, so they traversed a various number of sports. So he came up with these 16 teams and he wanted to find out, okay, and by the way, just before I, I kind of move on, what, what Sam did is he had a tier one. These 16 teams were in what he called tier one, the very best of the very best, the elite of the elite. And just for your information, if you want to know who they were, obviously read the book, but they were the Collingwood Magpies, who were in Australian rules football, the New York Yankees, Hungary, the great Hungary team, who uh, defeated England at Wembley all those years ago in the 1950s, the Montreal Canadiens, the Boston Celtics, Brazil, the most beautiful football team who've graced international football, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, Pittsburgh Steelers, American football, the uh, Soviet Union men's hockey team, the great All Blacks, who actually had two, two posts, two positions in, in Tier 1. They've been that, that dominant. Uh, women's volleyball from Cuba, uh, Australian men's hockey, USA women's football, and San, San Antonio Spurs, uh, France for, volleyball, uh, for handball, and the great Barcelona football team. So those were the 16 teams that were the elite of the elite for the reasons that they came through every criteria process that Sam gave them. But that hadn't answered his question. That just gave him, okay, which are the best teams that have ever been? These 16, according to this criteria. What he wanted to know was, why? Why were these 16 teams better and had achieved more, according to the criteria, obviously, than any other teams in in recorded history of sport. And by accident, as he he so eloquently puts it, it's a great story, he noticed something. And because he didn't expect this, he was thinking about all kinds of things that, you know, anybody who loves sport in any bar or any living room will tell you, oh, it's the money. Oh, it's because they've got a superstar player, Lionel Messi or Michael Jordan. But he came across something. And what he found was that the success of these teams, down to every single team, without one missing out, corresponded pretty much to the arrival and the departure from that team 
of one particular player. And he, he came up with, from that piece of information, that first of all, he just came across and thought, hmm, that's interesting, let's investigate. And very quickly found that there was this correspondence with the arrival and departure of this one player. He came up with the captain theory, and hence he wrote his book. So he started to dive into, in a deep, big way, into the 16 teams, and what he found was that each team had in their team at that particular time this one player, this one particular player who had arrived just before the team became successful and who left. And when they left, there was a corresponding dip in the players, in the team's form. And if you're interested in who these people are, I will tell you. Some of them, I had no idea who they were. In fact, most of them. The Collingwood Magpies was a guy called Sid Coventry. The New York Yankees was Yogi Berra. Hungary was Ferenc Puskas. The Montreal Canadiens was Morris Richard. The Boston Celtics was Bill Russell. Brazil was Hilderaldo Bellini. The Pittsburgh Steelers was Jack Lambert. The Soviet Union was Valery Vasiliev. The New Zealand All Blacks was Wayne Shelford. Uh, the Cuba volleyball team was Maria Luis. Uh, the United States football team, the women's football team, was Carla Overbeck. The San Antonio Spurs was Tim Duncan. And the last one, which I've missed out, was the women's volleyball from Cuba, was Maria. Uh, sorry, the done that one. The Australian missed one out somewhere. It was the Australian women's hockey. That's it. The Australian women's hockey was Maria. Uh, was Rochelle Hawks. So those are the sixteen individuals who corresponded with the success. Sorry, the thirteen. I missed three out. Um, I do apologise for this. Not very good at numbers. Uh, Barcelona football team was Carlos Puyol. The French handball team was Jerome Fernandez, and the second New Zealand All Blacks entry was Richie McCaw. So those were the sixteen. See, we all make mistakes. Those were the sixteen people, individuals, players whose tenure in their teams corresponded with the success. Now. This is just a phenomenal thing on its own when you read about it, never mind coming across it for the first time. Because could it really be true? And I haven't started reading this book, but you get to this point in the book, which is only 30 pages in, and he comes, Sam Walker comes up with this theory. And you know, some of you guys listen to this, some of you ladies listen to this, you'll, you'll have been in sport for many, many years, involved in it, watching it, playing it, organising it, coaching it, managing it. And we spend our lives bending our backs, sleeping, waking, writing, discussing, trying, practicing, playing, studying, traveling, trying to make our teams the very best we can be. And this guy has come up with a theory that it takes one person. Well, 
I think he goes a little bit deeper in that and, uh, and holds his hand up and says, it's not just one person, but this is the magic ingredient. And he spends the rest of the book, obviously, explaining why that is the case. So what, 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 does, he, what does he do next? Well, he then takes a deep dive into, into these people to find out, okay, that their tenure at these clubs and these teams does correspond with the success and when they leave the teams drop so what is it so special about these that makes makes these people so special and he came up with eight identifiable characteristics that all of these players demonstrated and showed and what they were is as follows number one and this is wonderful it is amazing and some of you will identify with this. I certainly identified with so many things in this book from a personal point of view, and I hope you do too. Number one, and they're not in any order of speciality, they're just one to eight. Number one, they were not, I absolutely love this, they were not superstar talent. So these players were not the greatest of all time category. They were not your Pele's. They were not your Lionel Messi's. They were not your Ronaldo's. They were not your George Best's. They were not superstar, talented players. Don't get me wrong. These people were elite players because they were in great teams, but they were not the best of the best. Technically, tactically, whatever you want to call it, they were not the team superstars. Number two, they were not fond of publicity and the spotlight they didn't chase glory they didn't chase the media in fact most of them disliked and some of them quite strongly disliked attention and media and did everything they could not to be at the front and not to be the focus of attention number three i love this they were not traditional leaders as how the world and the public sees leaders and he goes on to describe how, in some cases, and he uses the example of Germany, the German football team, Bayern Munich's leader on the pitch, the great Kaiser Franz Beckenbauer. Tall, good-looking, film star qualities, loved by seemingly everybody, but not in the same category as these 16 leaders. Number four, interestingly enough, they were not angels. Many of them, many of these 16 had histories that were a little bit on the edge. They were not whiter than white. They were prone to outbursts, prone to behaviors that are on the edge. And so they were completely human. Number five, they actually did what would be considered divisive things in their work and their lives. So they did not just toe the line. They did things and upset the apple cart and said things and acted in ways that people would have opinions on. Number six, Sam Walker pointed out that these people were not the usual suspects. So they weren't, it probably underlines 
the fourth point that they weren't angels. So they were not these whiter than white, perfect, good-looking, well-mannered individuals who did everything right. They weren't the usual suspects. Number seven, as leaders and as influencers, they were not recognized at the time necessarily, particularly by people outside the team and outside the club and outside the organization. And number eight, the last one, these people were not recognized as the primary leader of the squad or the team. What he means by that is, is that Franz Beckenbauer, probably as an example, would be recognized as the leader of Bayern Munich and the German national football team at that particular time. Ronaldo would probably be recognized as the leader of the Portugal team at that time. Um, another example could be Lionel Messi could be recognized as the team leader for Barcelona. So that is what he means by not being the primary leader. So there we are, we've got these 16 teams. We've got these 16 leaders and we've got these eight characteristics that Mr. Sam Walker has spent all this time analysing. But then he has to, to throw light onto the dispute about these other factors because there are a number of other factors that, that history and research and, and just opinion will tell you that these other things are responsible. Number one, the reason a team is great is because it contains a superstar player and he puts these people into a category of the greatest of all time. But a lot of people think that the, the reason a team is so great is because they contain the greatest of all time. Well, he goes on in his book to dispute that fact over and over and over again. And he uses numerous examples and one of the greatest examples he uses is um, Michael Jordan, because everybody says that Michael Jordan is, was you know, the greatest basketball player and was ever been and, and this phenomenal talent. And he goes on to describe why and how it's not one player who's a superstar who does it and he really underlines why that is not the case. Otherwise, the teams who had those great players would have achieved this tier one success. The next theory is that it's the team that has the most overall talent. And the best example that he uses for me in, in this is Real Madrid. Because there was a period in history, and Real Madrid may still be doing this, where they go out and spend as much money as they can possibly do and accumulate the greatest pool of talent that they can possibly get. Well, as Sam Walker points out, essentially that has not worked. That philosophy and that practice has not made Real Madrid into the greatest football team that has ever been, according to this criteria. So that theory goes out of the window. Next one, which is linked to that next theory, which Sam disproves is, it's not the money. Now there's a lot of research that says 
and, and a lot of this relates to the the world of professional football soccer is that the teams who spend the most money are the most successful so there's a relationship between how financially well off a team is and how well it does but Sam's research about the greatest of all time in terms of teams the elite of the elite does not equate to that because some of these teams in this in this group of 16 were not financially at the top of the tree the next theory is it's the culture and the management at the club Sam goes on to, to take a deep dive into that and, and proves quite clearly that some of these teams certainly did not fit in to that bracket of having excellent management and an amazing culture and the last thing and this is where this is a quite a, this is a, a, a listen this is a a big pill to swallow for us guys who are into coaching, who are into management, um, because he goes out to prove that as much as the world believes it is, as much as society wants to believe it is, and uh, as much as every chairman believes it is, and club owner, it's not necessarily the lead coach or the manager or the head coach. And he, he devotes a whole chapter on explaining why that is and why it's this special player that actually makes the difference we're into the book he's come up with this theory of these greatest teams he's come up with this amazing thought process that it's these particular players he's come up with the characteristics that they show which are really not sexy and not bright lights and are a bit boring and he's taken apart the other theories that people throw at it so what is it about these people, these 16 people who, according to this, this relationship, have created and facilitated these great teams. Well, Sam comes up with a number of reasons why. And he comes up with the seven things that these people do or did on a regular basis in their teams that created this success. Number one, they just keep coming. They're dogged, they're persistent, they show conation, and they do not give up. In every aspect of their life, they show this doggedness that, that does not allow them to quit. Characteristic number two, when they play, they play to win and they play on the edge. That means they push the boundaries in every way as far as they possibly can. They uphold their sport, they uphold the rules, but they push the boundaries as far as they possibly can. And Sam gives loads of reasons and, 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 and examples of that. Wonderful stuff. Number three, I love this. These people carry water. What that means is that they just do the mundane stuff to support the team on whatever day, whatever needs to be done. They don't just do the sexy stuff. They don't just pick and choose what they want to do. They do the stuff that needs to be done to get the team successful. They carry water. Number four. 
These are sound words, not mine. They box ears and wipe noses. See, they give people a kick up the backside when they need it. They get into them. They upset them. They tell them what needs to be told. They tell them the truth. And they empathize. They put their arm around people. And they support people who need to be supported. They do not just look after themselves. They look after everybody on the team. Number five. They demonstrate powerful non-verbal displays. What's so interesting about this is that these captains on the field, and it was very much on the field, had non-verbal communication skills that demonstrated resilience, power, confidence, assertiveness, all, 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 the, all the way through that, that inspired the people they played with. And the best example, and it's pretty obvious really, is the two New Zealand captains who obviously performed the hacker before international rugby games. And this particular thing, which is unique to the, to the All Blacks, was resurrected because at one time it fell away and was just, just something that people went through the motions. And then it was resurrected and became much more of an integral part with much more meaning so that the, the captains, you know, Shelford and McGraw, really made sure that it, it was utilised to, to its maximum so that it, it had the effect that it, they wanted it to have. Number six, all of these people had the courage to stand apart. So they did not toe the line when it needed to be dropped. They said what they needed to say they stood out, they risked their own security, they risked their own position and they had the courage to say what they needed to say. The best example in the book for me is when he talks about Philip Lahm standing up to the management at Bayern Munich and risking his own future. And number seven, really important, number seven, all of these people had what he calls a kill switch. And what he means by a kill switch is they were able to regulate their emotions. The example he gives here is Roy Keane, who people, if you said to people, okay, tell me in the English Premier League, the greatest leader of a team that's been in the last 20 years. And many, many people would probably come up with Roy Keane. And understandably so. The trouble with Roy Keane, as Sam Walker points out, is that yes he did many of these things but on this emotional regulation he was unable to regulate his emotion and he spent so much time injured so much time suspended that he missed out on his own Champions League final and he was missing from the team for too much of the time and the great champions these great leaders of these 16 teams all demonstrated their ability to regulate their emotions because it was that important. Now, that essentially forms the, the whole crux of this book, that you've got this, these great teams who had all this amazing success, which correlates perfectly with the careers of these people 
who showed all these characteristics. Yet, none of them were really sexy. None of them were the screen idols. None of them courted the moonlight, or, or, or the limelight, should I say. In fact, the world that we live in, as Sam points out so eloquently, has this dream and this reality, in fact, of what he calls false idols. That the media wants this fantastically good-looking man or woman to be portrayed, to be up there, when in fact the real leaders, the real people, the real glue, the real key components are these quiet, unassuming, media-avoiding people who keep their real displays for when it matters, for the 90 minutes or the 80 minutes or the hour or whatever it is on the pitch. And the only people who really know even though there's thousands and millions of people watching. Despite that, the only people who really know their value are often their coaches and their teammates, which is quite amazing. And he ends the book by talking about how he believes that, the, that this theory of, 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 uh, that he's come up with is still not sexy and it's still not accepted and, and people just you know, still don't buy into it. And he relates to the the great Tao Te Ching book where, you know, the great Tao where, where the greatest leaders are not those who everybody lords and applauds and sings about and, and builds statues to. The greatest leaders are those when the people turn around and say, aha, you see all this that we've achieved, we did it ourselves. And I thought that was a great way to end the book because it epitomizes pretty much exactly what Sam has found out in The Captain Theory and what Sam has so eloquently discussed in his book, The Hidden Force Behind the World's Greatest Teams. I really thought that was worth sharing. I think it's a wonderful book. I really encourage you to have a look at it. And it certainly changed, changed my thought processes on uh, on a number of things so thank you Sam I hope you've enjoyed that I hope you get something out of it let me know what you think www.robriles.co.uk um, check out all the other podcasts or catch me on LinkedIn Twitter Facebook have a look at the videos on YouTube or uh, check us out on our game alright listen great to chat as always appreciate your time catch you later bye bye